Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 466. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a great little show today and it is smack bang right in the middle of Christmas and New Year as well. So I hope everyone has had a fantastic, if if you're into the kind of Christmas spirit, I hope you've had a great festive season, festive holiday and looking forward to the New Year and my God, do I want the New Year to come. What a bitch of a 2016, man. No, I don't even go there, man. It's just like, is up all over the place. Sorry for this. It honestly, it's caught me something not right, man. It's just knocked us senseless. I want to just get straight to the show. I'm still doing my night shift. If anyone remembers last, <laughs> I don't know if I'm batting or balling. Honestly, and I t- well, I missed. You know, and and I knew Carrie Fisher had been taken off the plane with you know in intensive care heart attack, and I missed just with the, the night shifts. You know, I didn't know for. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it was probably 18 hours. Do you know what I mean? And it was just like, so I just found out last night. I think it was last night. I don't know, it's all blending into one. And it was just, man, no, man. You know what I mean? And then, you know, Richard Adams, I think it's Richard Adams, the uh, Watership Down writer as well. You know, and that was from me childhood as well, man. Just, just not going to senseless this. You know what I mean? It's just like, let's get 2017 here. Do you know what I mean? What a time. So, we have, I'll tell you what's coming in this show. We have the main fiction, which is Taken the High Road by Richard Johnson. Then we have our fact article, Mr. J.J. Campanella, rounding off the this 2016. Jim put some sprinkles on it, try and make it a little bit better. Do you know, let's, God, let's, let's hope so. So, we'll jump straight in to, and what, just to give you a heads up, it's now... Half seven in the morning. You know, I was saying I'm doing these <laughs> nights. I'm having to do it now on the Wednesday morning. I've got one more night shift, so that's why I'm talking a little bit on this kind of hushed side tones. They're all still in bed because I want to kind of do this and then chase sleep all the way till about three o'clock this afternoon. So, like I say, the, the main fiction is Richard Johnson and it is Taking the High Road, originally published in Bain. Richard Johnson is an award-winning writer of science fiction, having won the Gold Award at the Writers of the Future competition in 2011 and the Jim Bain Memorial Writing Contest in 2012. He previously appeared on Starship Sofa with his flash fiction A Friend in Need. I can, Richard, I can remember that so, God, a long time ago as well, mind you. And he also, we've also... 
And like you see, you've got to get past Jeremy, but Jeremy's said yes to his Writers of the Future winning story as well, so we'll be playing that in the future. And we'll actually pay Richard for that, by God, yes. His day job, his day, his day job is a structural engineer, and it's taken him all over the world, from UK and Dublin to Singapore and Hong Kong. He currently lives in Melbourne, Australia, with his wife and two sons. He blogs at rpljohnson.com, and his previously published short fiction can be found at all ebook retailers. This story is narrated by Stephanie Morris. Stephanie is a professional student, a librarian in training, and an audiophile, and occasional writer of short stories. She has narrated for Pseudopod, Podcastle, and Cast of Wonders, and just a lovely narration. It's lovely and clean and just spot on, Stephanie. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Taking the High Road by R.P.L. Johnson Personal Log Laurie Childs, Senior Planetary Scientist Date, 12th of April, 2037 Four months, seven days Distance from Earth, 1.19 AU They waited two weeks to tell us about the accident. I guess they had to be sure. There was no point in making us worry unnecessarily, But it meant that when the announcement came, it seemed there was no way out, no wiggle room, no chance of a second opinion. I was in the Deck 3 lab when the call came through to meet in the storm shelter. Beth Young was behind me, almost back-to-back in the small compartment. She was checking the readouts for the solar array, something to do with the power drain in the aeroponics lamps. Anyway, she was looking right at the data. If there was some kind of solar storm some unpredicted event that could force us into the storm shelter. She would have seen it in the data. She just looked at me and shrugged. I was never a very good astronaut. Don't get me wrong, I love Mars. I have done ever since I can remember. I used to dream about walking on that red dirt, and my whole career has been about making that dream a reality. But getting to the red planet takes a different set of skills. I never triggered any red flags that would have seen me bounced from the mission— but neither was I comfortable in space. We were two decks down from the storm shelter, not far, not in a ship like the Liberty, but far enough when you're expecting radiation or pressure alarms to start sounding any second. We climbed up the narrow aluminum ladders between decks. Some people say they can feel the difference in gravity between decks, but I think they're just fooling themselves. The Liberty looked like two grain silos connected by a tether 500 meters long that was essentially one huge carbon molecule. One silo was the crew compartment, the other housed the reactor. And the whole thing was spinning through space to give us the illusion of gravity as we hurtled between Earth and Mars. At the center of rotation was a smaller unmanned module that housed the communication gear and solar array mounted on gimbals so that they always pointed where they were supposed to despite our rotation. On that scale, the three-meter difference between decks means next to nothing. Commander Campbell looked like hell, as if he hadn't slept for two nights, although I had seen him at breakfast and he'd been fine then. He didn't say much, He just played the message that had come through at the start of the morning shift. I don't remember much of it, just snippets like how the file was marked MC+, meaning it was for the mission commander's eyes only. 
I remember wondering if Campbell was going to get into trouble for showing it to us. That was before I realized that rebukes from mission control were the last of our worries. There had been an accident on Mars, an unexpected environmental event, in the agency's typically understated parlance. Even two weeks later, they were still working out exactly what had happened, but the best guess was that higher-than-expected winds had forced enough dust inside a joint on the fuel farm to clog a pressure valve. Shortly after that initial fault, an explosion had devastated the site. All telemetry from the fuel farm ceased, and reports from other systems all pointed to a massive systemic failure. Now, two weeks later, the only data they were still getting were temperature readings, and they were showing Mars ambient. The fuel farm was dead, and with it had gone all the other modules intended to support us during our time on Mars. I don't think I realized at first what that meant. I remember turning to Beth and seeing tears in her eyes. The Liberty had finally spun down to Martian gravity three weeks ago, and great globes of one-third gravity teardrops clung to her lashes until she blinked them away. The fuel farm was our ticket home. It was a self-contained chemical plant that mixed hydrogen with carbon dioxide from the Martian atmosphere to produce methane. It had been sent to Mars on an unmanned probe along with the habitation modules 26 months ago during the last launch window. Making fuel on-site spared us from hauling that mass all the way from Earth. The fuel farm was what had made a manned mission to Mars a reality, and now it was gone. There was not so much panic as anger. Less shouting than I thought the situation warranted, but what there was echoed off the aluminum walls. Campbell held up his hands for quiet, which was a long time coming. Eventually, he said, As of now, I am activating the emergency response plan. Now, I realize it's been a while since you've read it, but it's in your kits and it's on the network, so dig it out and get to know it. There will be a meeting of section heads in five minutes. For everyone else, remember that there is no immediate danger. Our biggest enemy at the moment is panic, so I expect to see everyone at their stations. That is all. You are going to die, but don't panic and go back to work. That is all. The shouting started up again even before he had finished speaking. He let us carry on, like an angler letting out line for the fish to tire itself out before reeling it back in. I know this looks bad, he said eventually, but we've got months of consumables, more if we're strict about it, and I'll be damned if I'm going to spend that time with my thumb up my ass watching the O2 gauge and waiting to die. We have a ship full of PhDs. Everyone here is a certified genius, and I'm going to ask you to prove it. We'll find a workaround, something they've missed. Section heads, you now have two minutes. Eventually, we did go back to our stations. For one thing, although the storm shelter was big enough to hold the entire crew, it didn't do so in much comfort, and I found that comfort was what I needed right now more than anything. I needed my seat in the lab, my music, the consolations of the familiar. We were all in shock, I suppose. There was a note blinking on my terminal when I got back to my workstation, something about grief counselors being on standby back on Earth in case we wanted to pour out our hearts in an email, but the 20-minute round trip for messages didn't seem appropriate. In the end, we were alone. There must be something they can do, Beth said. A new orbit, slingshot around Mars, and build up speed for a fast trip back, that sort of thing. I don't think so. If there was, they would have told us. 
Fumi Mashimo and Claire O'Brien had followed us back from the storm shelter, and we sat together, knee to knee in the cramped compartment. Beth tried again. Perhaps they could send a rescue mission, she said. It wouldn't have to be manned. Just a heavy lift rocket with a care package of consumables. That might be enough to last until a window opens up for a return orbit. Fumi shook his head. Long locks of snow-white hair swank in the reduced gravity, like a slow-mo video from a shampoo commercial. It would take too long, he said. My youthful years watching old Kung Fu movies imbued his accented words with a wisdom they probably didn't merit. Fumi was a paleobiologist, not flight crew. He knew as much about Hallman transfer orbits and Oberth maneuvers as I did, i.e. not much. If it wasn't man, they could send it at higher acceleration, Claire O'Brien said. That must open up some new orbits. Unless it is on the launch pad now, it won't get here in time. And if it was, they would have told us. Fumi shook his head again. There will be no rescue from Earth. Then it's up to us, Claire said, sounding almost chipper. Like Campbell said, we have a ship full of geniuses. We just have to figure out a way to harness that. Unfortunately, Fumi said, gravity is not swayed by academic credentials. There are realities that we must face. Realities, yes, but not certainties. Beth, how long would it be until we could harvest crops from aeroponics? Beth looked shocked. We're not set up for that. The aeroponics labs are basically just keeping the seedlings alive until we reach Mars. We don't have the capacity to start farming on board ship. What if we made capacity? We're carrying spare parts and lamps ready to be set up on Mars. What if we doubled or tripled the capacity of the labs? What then? We could supplement the food stores and the extra plants could take the load off the CO2 scrubbers. That won't get us home, I said. No, but it enlarges the window for a rescue mission. Water, Beth said. The recyclers aren't perfect, and the more water we use to grow plants, the less we have for ourselves. I'd have to do the numbers, but if we doubled our crop, my guess is that we'd all die of thirst before we saw a harvest. Claire was undaunted. Then we'll just have to increase the efficiency of the recyclers. Come on, we have to try. She looked around the small group. Beth was quiet, probably doing the calculations in her head. Fumi was typically inscrutable but he was the type to dress for dinner and go down with the ship rather than fight for survival. And me? I just wanted to go home. Personal Log Lori Childs Senior Planetary Scientist Date 23rd of April, 2037 Four months, 18 days Distance from Earth, 1.201 AU Just when I thought we were beginning to accept our situation, our little community started to tear itself apart. Our mission plan included a flyby of Comet 10P Temple. We were never going to get closer than 500 kilometers, but that would have been close enough to view it with the naked eye. There had been robotic missions to comets before, even impactors and landers, but this was to have been a first for the manned space program. The problem was, the maneuver would use fuel. I don't see why we should stick to the mission plan when it's going to dramatically reduce our options later. By virtue of having the loudest voice, Ed Carradine had become the unofficial spokesperson for the Ditch the Mission Plan faction. Craig Rowe took a deep breath. As pilot and second-in-command, he was responsible for internal ship matters, including quelling a nascent mutiny. 
Our trajectory has been locked in since we left Earth. Yes, there will be a course correction both to finalize the flyby and also to put us back in the groove for orbital insertion at Mars. But changing the trajectory to avoid the comet will also cost fuel. But it will save some. You don't know that. Where, exactly, do you want to go? Tom Barsakoff, the chief engineer, said. We can forget both burns if you like. Just carry on the way we're headed now. It won't mean anything. We'll die with full fuel tanks, that's all. There it was. The D word. Up until now, everyone had been talking about efficiency, optimum use of resources, avoiding the obvious objection to all these plans, which was that none of them would get us back to Earth. We were in the storm shelter again. It was even more crowded than usual now that a third of the space had been given over to Beth's expanded aeroponics racks. The crew had split right down the middle. From day one, there had been two distinct groups on the mission— Mission Control had even fostered the split with friendly morale-building softball matches on the Antarctic tundra during our training. On one side were the scientists, the guys who were going to study Mars. We were not so much payload specialists, as we would have been called in the shuttle era, but payload. We were the reason for the mission, to get our hands and eyes and brains to the surface of Mars. On the other side were the flight crew and engineers, Professional astronauts whose job it was to deliver us safely to Mars and keep us alive when we got there. By a few days after we were told about the accident, you could run your finger down the roster and by looking at each person's job description, you could tell which side of the debate they would come down on. The flight crew argued that we would best honor our memories by following our mission plan to the last breath. A few even argued for an attempted landing on Mars— the arguments had evolved in the days after the announcement. It had started with the hope that enough of the base would be salvageable to allow the mission to continue. Later, some expressed a wish to at least stand on the Red Planet before they died. But there were difficulties even in dying. Along with the fuel farm, the habitat, and all the solar panels, we had also lost the transponder that would guide the lander in. Finding a nice spot on Mars to sit down and just let your air run out had a certain tragic beauty to it. A forced march across the landscape with a broken collarbone and a ruptured suit because the unassisted landing was a bit too hard was less attractive. But the scientists didn't have the same response to authority that they had. Absolute obedience to the chain of command wasn't drummed into us the way it was into them. We had all had years of training, but we were still scientists first and astronauts second, and guys like Ed objected not because they had any particular notion of what to do instead, but more out of general inertia. With every gram of fuel and liter of air being precious, the reluctance to utilize any of it was paralyzing. And Claire? Despite being one of the most vocal of the science department, she never aligned with either camp and instead attacked all ideas equally. Tom joked that talking to her for five minutes was like a stress test for ideas. She probed every problem from multiple, simultaneous fronts. Some of the things she threw into the discussion were fanciful, to say the least, but they were always novel, and her scientific knowledge was prodigious, extending well outside her speciality in geophysics. I had spent hours in deep discussion with Claire. Indeed, in the days following Campbell's announcement, it seemed that everyone on board had spent hours with her. Our predicament seemed to instill in her a fervent energy. 
For most of us, the adrenaline produced by fear was a short-lived reaction. In the face of such a gradual catastrophe as ours, no one could sustain the flight-or-fight reaction for long. No one except Claire. I remember that we had talked about the concept of functional immortality, the idea that if you could increase the functional life of something, be that an engine part or a human being, by just a small amount, even as small as one day, and if you could keep doing that day in, day out, then the part would never wear out. It would perpetually be one day away from failure, but if that day could be pushed even further into the future, then it would never come, and immortality of a sort could be achieved. Claire was convinced that the concept could be applied to our situation. If we could solve the problems of the day, and keep doing that day after day, then the final collapse would never come. To that end, she worked tirelessly. She helped to increase the efficiency of the waste recyclers. She brainstormed with Tom and Beth, and together they managed to increase the yield from aeroponics. At her insistence, we even started eating together, all fifteen of us in one large sitting in the storm shelter, so that the sharing of food became easier and less was wasted. Everything she did helped to push that final day a little further into the future. Her refusal to align with either camp made her something of a lonely figure, and her maniac energy had gained her the reputation of a bit of a kook. But we all ate together anyway, and when she spoke, dissenting voices on both sides of the argument yielded the floor. "'Could we match orbit?' I asked. Fourteen pairs of eyes turned in my direction. "'I mean, it's ice, isn't it? That's what we need.' Claire was beaming at me. "'Oh, crap!' Whatever faction Claire was in, it looked like I was in it, too. Lori's right, Claire said. The question is not whether we should go look at the comet. It's what we do when we get there. Do we just watch as it flies past the window, or do we try and use it? Now hang on, I said. I wasn't... But I was drowned out, as the chamber exploded in furious debate. We're headed away from Earth like a bat out of hell, and you want us to accelerate? Said Ed Carradine. I didn't want that. I didn't even know if catching up to the comet was possible. I just knew that Beth needed water for the crops, and we were going to pass within a few hundred kilometers of megatons of the stuff. Like Claire said, solve a day's problems and keep doing that every day and you can live forever. Craig Rowe hadn't stopped staring at me since I'd first spoken. It was like he'd just seen a hamster whistle the star-spangled banner and was wondering if it would do it again. Then he smiled and started making some calculations on his pad. Look at it this way, Claire said. We're victims of a shipwreck, and a lifeboat is floating right past us. It's heading away from shore, but if we don't climb aboard, we're going to drown. Temple has a period of what, five years? said Ed Carradine. You're signing us up for a five-year joyride out of the solar system. Better than choking on carbon dioxide within five months, someone said from behind me. More than five years, Tom said. The next orbit won't bring us any nearer to Earth. But she's right. The one thing we need right now is water. With water, ice, and sunlight, we can make all the atmosphere we need. With water and dry ice, we can make fuel. We have enough phosphates and nitrates to grow food for years. All we need is ice and time. If we can catch that comet, we'll have both. The vote was carried 11-3 to 3 with one abstention, mine. I left as soon as the result was announced. That night, as I lay in my crib, I turned the noisy little air fans up as high as they would go, 
so that no one would hear me cry. Personal Log Lori Childs, Ice Miner Date 2nd of August, 2037 7 months, 28 days Distance from Earth 0.87 AU I'm becoming a pretty good welder. There's not much to it. Ice is a much more forgiving material than steel, and the new welding glances and hot knives coming out of engineering are much easier to use than the clunky first-generation tools. The Liberty is starting to look more like a snow-capped mountain than a ship. We use the Mars lander as a kind of manned grappling hook for the initial contact with the comet, and then brought the bulk of the Liberty in by reeling in the tether. Soon after the ship was secured to the surface, we started to clad it with ice. The ice was Claire's idea. Not only does it act as shielding against cosmic rays, but it also protects against micrometeorites. With this extra armor, we're less reliant on the storm shelter. The whole ship has become as safe as the shelter, safer even. In the original layout, the storm shelter was an additional pressure hull inside the ship. An airtight cylinder shielded both by our limited supply of heavy metals and also by the water tanks that encircled it. By adding the ice, we have essentially taken our water stores, frozen them, and fixed them externally to the hull. That's freed up a lot of internal space. There is already talk of cannibalizing the storm shelter's metals and its triple-redundant, self-contained life support. It was supposed to be our last resort in an emergency, but as Claire pointed out in the last union, every day is an emergency. The extra space is mostly given over to aeroponics. Living in the Liberty now feels like living inside a greenhouse. The loss of gravity has allowed Beth and Chris Mendenhall to start farming the walls and ceilings. Sometimes you float into a chamber, and it's like being on the inside of a kind of biological geode. All around you are the tendrils of soya plants and the broad leaves of ferns. At Union last week, Beth and Chris announced that they were engaged— Commander Campbell ordered that the last of the chocolate pudding be served and joked that he was saving the ice cream for the birth of the first child in space. At least I think he was joking. Tom and the engineering crew are working around the clock taking the sensors, vents, antenna, and all the Liberty's other external hardware and extending them out on a forest of ducks and conduits, meters long. Then we grunts come along with our lances and the ice blocks as big as pull tables, and make with the igloo building before the engineers reattach the hardware on the new ice. It's hard work. At close to absolute zero, ice is as hard as steel. And even in microgravity, the big blocks of ice still have mass and inertia. Getting them going is hard work, and maneuvering them into position even harder. We've had a few injuries, muscle strains and one nasty crushing. Fumi was only saved from a broken ankle by the bulk of his suit, even then, his foot swelled up like the pulp of a blood orange. God, I miss blood oranges. When I go to sleep at night, my forearms are burning with fatigue, and I sleep like the dead. There is talk of modifying some thruster units to help maneuver the ice, but it was voted down at Union. We need the exercise. I'm glad of the work. This week marks the closest approach of Earth, as its tighter orbit means it catches up with Temple. Soon we will leave the plane of the ecliptic and start our journey out into the black. 
When we failed to make the orbital correction burn that would take us away from the comet, we started on a whole new mission, one that I am responsible for. Even though Commander Campbell is still nominally in charge, this joyride was my idea. Fifteen people's lives bet on my blurted-out suggestion. Personal Log Lori Childs, Ice Miner Date 17th of June, 2038 One year, six months, twelve days Distance from Earth 4.265 AU Some of us make more sacrifices than others. I saw Tom Barsikoff in the flight deck today. With no need for course corrections or any hope of landing on Mars, the compartment is now given over completely to storage. The only instrument of any worth is the radio, which is the only reason the space is not given up to the wet warmth of aeroponics. I sometimes go there to escape the pervasive heat. Tom, it seemed, was there for different reasons. Talking to my wife, he said. His eyes were raw like wounds. In his hands, he clutched a scrap of something that glittered even in the low cabin illumination. He caught my stare. I coated it with some of the diamond monofilm we were supposed to test on Mars, he said. I was worried it would fade. It was a small photograph of a size easily tucked into a wallet. As he turned it in his hands, I saw the faces of a woman and a child pressed together in a shared hug and smiling at the camera. I felt instantly ashamed, both for intruding on his privacy, and God knows that's hard to come by on board ship, and also for forgetting that Tom was married. Back when the vote was taken to hitch our fate to a speeding comet, it was Tom's vote that had settled it. Tom, with the unofficial voting block of his engineering team and his affable matter-of-factness that brought along many more. Tom, with his casual competence that comes from years of getting real machinery to work in a real world that cared nothing for appearances and politics. Tom and his selfless action against interest. I realized then that although I had forgotten about Tom's wife and child, others had not. They saw this man with so much to go home for, vote to take a ride out of the plane of the ecliptic, and they figured that was the only way to go. And so here he was, weeping in front of a radio while his words made the 35-minute trip back to Earth, plating family photos with abrasion-resistant film and looking in vain in his engineer's toolkit for a tool capable of mending the broken, jagged lump in his chest. The speaker crackled with the woman's voice as raw as Tom's eyes. I left them to it. Personal Log Lori Childs, Engineer's Mate, 2 Class Date, 12th of February, 2039 2 years, 2 months, 7 days Distance from Earth, 3.486 AU I'd almost forgotten what gravity feels like. We're spinning up slowly, barely half a revolution per minute at the moment, on a 500-meter tether. That's enough for about 0.15 g. But after acclimatizing to Mars gravity, and then spending nearly 18 months weightless, believe me, 15% is plenty. The halls of the Liberty ring with curses as all manner of stumbles, trips, drops, and falls have painted us all in a palette of bruised purple. But it had to be done. Diana is pregnant. 
She told us at Union two weeks ago. She was concerned about the effect of weightlessness on the unborn child, and so petitioned the group for the construction of a centrifugal exercise chamber. Claire suggested one better. She announced that she had been studying the mineralogical maps of the comet and had found what she called a possible counterweight, a large mass of ice that was thoroughly marbled with useful minerals that she believed could be cut free relatively easily. Claire proposed freeing the mass and using it as a counterweight to set the Liberty spinning again. It would mean free flight, and so we would have to use fuel to hold station with Temple. But that wasn't so much of a problem. We're now producing kilograms of methane and free hydrogen every few days, barely enough to coat the inside of the fuel tanks and not nearly enough to take us home, but more than enough for station keeping. And so it was back on the lances. More detailed work this time, and more dangerous. The counterweight massed close to half a million tons. Over a period of weeks, we cut away at the surrounding ice and placed shaped charges around its remaining supports. We were all aboard ship and in pressure suits, helmets on but visors raised, when Tom Barsakoff fired the charges. It was a supreme anticlimax. The explosion, buffered by half a million tons of ice, was little more than a ripple to bend the fronds of our aeroponic walls. Amy DeLuca never got to fly her lander down to the Martian surface, but she did get to pilot a comet, or at least a fragment of one. The explosion had set us moving away from Temple at the rate of a few centimeters a second. The Liberty, never a sportster at the best of times, was a sluggish tugboat hauling a half-million-ton barge. It took hours to rise clear of Temple. Over the next few weeks, we slowly started to set the giant mass spinning. We used mirrors to vaporize chunks of the surface, forming a fog of outgassing volatiles that slowly became a mini-comet's tail as the counterweights started to move. We were aiming for 0.52 RPM, enough to give us our 0.15 G at full tether extension. 0.52 RPM was not much. It equated to a speed on the surface of about 9 kilometers per hour. Once that magic number was achieved, we gathered again in the storm shelter. Everyone except Claire was in spacesuits. She had opted for comfort and wore shorts and a t-shirt with the NASA logo that read, Stop the world, I want to get off. We all listened in on the intercom as Craig Rowe took the left-hand jump seat in our underused bridge and slowly let out the tether, leaving the lander attached to the counterweight while the bulk of the ice-clad Liberty eased away at low thrust. We must have looked like a spider extending on a gossamer thread from a slowly spinning globe of muddy ice. There was an embarrassing flatulent chorus as our internal organs negotiated for space inside our bodies, and with that fanfare, gravity returned. Personal Log Lori Rowe, Engineer's Mate Date, 21st of August, 2042 Five years, eight months, sixteen days Distant from Earth, 0.835 AU Today we had the first death in the manned space program since Columbia, and it was all my fault. It was a routine operation. My team was on the counterweight, mining a particularly rich seam of aluminum oxide dust, grunt work, nothing that we hadn't done a score of times before. Fumi was helping secure the power cables for my lance. One minute he was fine. The next I turned around to look at him and saw the inside of his visor splattered with vomit. A light blinked on his chest plate, low oxygen. 
It took us forty minutes to get him back to the Liberty. His body was limp, limbs splayed out like a human starfish by the internal pressure of his suit. We had to manhandle him inside the small airlock like we were bringing in a chunk of ice, which in a way we were. Fumi was dead. Diana read out the autopsy at Union that evening. He died peacefully, she said. A bad regulator in his suit slowly asphyxiated him. So slowly, he never even realized there was a problem. He would have just felt a bit lightheaded and fainted inside his suit. The vomit I saw was just a reflex. He was probably past saving even then. There was nothing we could have done, but Tom suggested a thorough overhaul of all the suits to make sure it wouldn't happen again. There is an unspoken convention at Union. Everyone attends and everyone stays until the end. Dinner is a politics-free zone, but after that comes a town hall meeting. If someone is criticizing you or your department, tough. You get the right of reply, but no one dodges the issue. Everyone gets a chance to be heard. It's worked pretty well so far. This time, I just couldn't do it. There were other people crying, but what I felt was more than just sadness. It was as if everyone was looking at me. I was the one who had dragged us out here. If I hadn't suggested catching the comet, Fumi would never have had to make a single spacewalk. I remember nothing of the eulogy. I just remember a rising sensation of smothering and cloying warmth, as if my regulator had malfunctioned and I was the one who was asphyxiating. I fled. Claire found me in the ready room where the suits were kept between shifts. The casing on Fumi's suit was open, the faulty regulator exposed. I was staring at it. It wasn't your fault, Claire said. These suits were never designed for the kind of punishment we put them through. If we hadn't landed on the comet, we wouldn't have needed to use them at all. Claire took my hands. With a maternal gesture that I found at once intensely invasive but also reassuring, she smoothed the lock of my hair back behind my ear. The look in her eyes was one of almost beatific kindliness and calm. Then his death was as much my fault as it was yours. I pushed for this just as much as you, more even. Don't you ever worry that it was the wrong thing to do? I saw in her eyes that she didn't. We are five years into an eight-month trip, she said. If we hadn't landed on Temple... Fumi would probably have died long ago along with the rest of us. She hugged me, and her voice was a whisper against my ear. Don't think about one death. Remember his life and the fourteen other lives you saved. She said it with such conviction, such assured passion, that for a moment I almost believed it. Personal Log, Lori Rowe, Assistant Astrogator. Date, 7th of March, 2054. 17 years, 3 months, 2 days. Distance from Earth, 3.022 AU. Jessica was almost uncontrollable today. The pressure testing of the new habitat wasn't even complete, and she already wanted to move in. I tried to reason with her, but the confidence of teenagers, along with the mass of the electron and the speed of light, seems to be as constant out here as it was on the earth of my youth. Oh, Mom, she said, we don't have to wait. If the ice held the overpressure during mining, then it's bound to hold up under one lousy atmo. 
Even if there is a pipsqueak leak, we can just find and fix after we've moved in. A pipsqueak leak. She was talking about a hull breach. It was the kind of thing that would have sent the engineer's admission control into paroxysms of activity, and my 14-year-old daughter talked about it as if she were discussing the color of the drapes. We were one of the last families to move over. The counterweight already held the new aeroponics garden, the pool, sickbay, and suites for four families. A warren of chambers had been melted into the muddy ice and lined and clad and lit and pressurized. There was more enclosed volume over there now than there was in Old Liberty. Our ship now resembled a flying barbell of glittering ice. I'm sorry that I haven't chronicled this better, but Tom will have cataloged the changes in exhaustive technical detail. Where once we were an ice-armored tin can being spun around at the end of a tether from the spinning ball, years of mining, building, and tunneling had distributed the mass almost evenly. The tether that once connected us was still there, but its carbon nanotubes were mostly used for data cables now. The structural work was taken up by the shaft, a 50-meter-thick column of reinforced ice enclosing the transfer tunnel. At the bare center, a slight thickening held not only the old comms array and sensors, but also the zero gem in sort of parish hall come nightclub, where Aaron Rhodes traded his home-brewed beer and which the youngsters had named the Sentry Bar. We didn't eat together anymore, but we still held union once a week. Sometimes we premiere new movies beamed straight from Earth. Other weeks were taken up by ship business or celebrations. We had shed a lot of mass, sloughed off the looser, friable material, and sent it back to the main body of the comet, where we could pick it up any time. The Liberty was now a sprightly 2,500 tons, five times her launch mass, and more massive even than the orbital shipyard where she had been built. Now each family had a suite of rooms to itself, and the tunneling was still ongoing. Maria Cassati, Diana and Frank's daughter, was nearly sixteen, and she had been going steady with one of the Mendenhall twins for nearly two years. This first generation of born spacefarers had grown up quickly. The smart money was on a marriage as soon as the next apartment was ready, and a third generation soon after that, despite the protestations of Diana, the soon-to-be first grandma... In space. Personal log, Lori Rowe, assistant astrogator. Date, seventh of January, twenty fifty nine. Twenty two years, one month, two days. Distant from Earth, two point thirty six AU. Claire's will left specific instructions on how to deal with her remains. We'd had a couple of deaths so far: Fumi's accident and Christian Bradfield's tragic death during childbirth. But Claire's was the first death that we had time to prepare for. I read out her instructions at Union and tried to remember when she first told us about the cancer. It was about six months ago. This letter was dated two years prior to that, handwritten on pages from a NASA notebook a quarter century old. She had known for some time, but had kept it from everyone. I have transcribed it here in its entirety. Do not grieve. That's the first thing. Death itself is nothing, only a cessation of things, an end to pain. The anticipation of death is only somewhat more frightening, but only because of what I fear for my loved ones. I do not fear the end, but I do tremble at the thought of being the cause of sadness. So do not grieve. 
I could not bear it. I would like my body to be placed in the biome for recycling. By the time you read this, I will have gone. All that remains are chemicals pressed into my form. If that is too much for you, then let the children do it. They understand. They see this final sacrament for the gift that it is, and are not encumbered by the mawkish sentimentality of what once was. Their mythology is one born of looking forward. They tell tales of what will be. No campfire yarns of the deeds of ancient heroes for them. Their heroes are yet to come and indeed may be closer than any of you realize. I don't want to say I told you so. So do not grieve for me. I, out of all of us, gained the most from our prolonged detour. I signed on for a three-year mission, thinking that was the closest I would ever get to life lived among the stars. I sometimes feel guilt, guilt at having enjoyed my life so much. It was almost as if the accident was my fault, an act of karmic sabotage to bring about what I wanted more than anything else. Look at us now, comet riders and spacefarers, a pocket-sized nation of citizen scientists with a unity of purpose not seen since we left behind the subsistence farming of medieval village life, and yet with all of space before us. No longer limited to our field, our herds, and the banks of our river, we can now take these things with us, and there is no limit to our wanderings. So do not grieve. Pick me apart and set every molecule to work. This ship is my dream, and I have worked all my life to see it come to fruition, and I'll be damned if I let a little thing like death intervene. Arastra, Claire. Personal Log Lori Rowe, Assistant Astrogator, Retired Date, 24th of June, 2062 25 years, 6 months, 19 days Distance from Earth, 0.01 AU And closing There it is, our first view of our home planet in 25 years a few of us gathered in the observation bubble once word got around that Earth was now a recognizable sphere rather than just a cluster of blue-green pixels. It looks odd. No, that's not right. It looks exactly as it should look, exactly as it has always looked from this distance. It looks like it looked from the moon in Apollo, like it looked from the Liberty during those first days. It looked exactly the same as it had always looked. It is my perception of it that has changed. At one time, I would have given everything I had to see that old ball again and to know that I was coasting toward it. All I ever wanted was to go home. And now, faced with the planet of my birth, I realize that I will never again call it home. It had not changed, but I had. My parents are gone, and I never had much of an extended family or even friends outside my career. My family is here now. Maria Casati is commander now and she has a shopping list as long as the tether. We can do a lot on board ship, but some things just need manufacturing clout or technical expertise that we just don't have in our potted population of 27 souls. Although we don't have money, we're not short of things to barter with. We have a hold full of magnesium and titanium. Nothing too spectacular. No asteroid-sized diamonds or alien artifacts. But every ton of mass we leave in orbit is a ton less to be lifted out of Earth's gravity well. Factoring in that markup, 
We are all returning Earth as billionaires. There is an ulterior motive, too. Every plate and pressure vessel, every kilo of water ice we leave in orbit is an invitation. Like a cookie held out to a wary child, it says, Come on, we won't bite. Come and play. The fact is that we've had a hell of a run of luck. We set out in a fragile tin can hurled like a bolus at the blackness, but we are coming back in a glittering spaceship under our own power and with fuel to take us twice around the solar system, if you don't mind taking the scenic route. But we're lonely. Our little community can't last forever. Parts wear out. People, too. Along with the refined metals, the pre-manufactured solar cells and tons of water and methane ice, we are also returning to Earth with a lifetime of experience. This you can have for free. Along with these excerpts from personal logs, all the technical specs of the Liberty, along with all the other manuals, drawings, routines, and algorithms that we've used to turn the old girl into the ship she really wanted to be, will be transmitted to the net. Probably they seem a bit old-fashioned to you. Sure, we've had 25 years of hands-on experience in spacefaring, but our material, science, and sensor and propulsion tech is now a quarter century out of date. I'm sure you can do better. We'll be swinging by just long enough to drop off Tom and a few sightseers and arrange for the trade of those items we need. After that, who knows? Perhaps a few months in a pole-to-pole orbit mapping Venus, or a trip to the Jovian system if we can work the bugs out of the magnetic shielding. We'll be back in a few years. No one fancies another quarter century between refills of chocolate, steak, penicillin, and morphine. But it will be as visitors, traders. We are not earthlings, not anymore. And space is too interesting to watch from the bottom of a gravity well. I thought I was coming home. But this is my home now, as one day it could be yours. That's about all I have to say. No doubt, as well as my humble account, you'll want to read the logs of some of the other crew members— I understand that Claire's video diary has already gone viral. Some of you may even be interested in Aaron Rhodes' mystery trilogy that he insists on including in the upload. But don't spend too much time reading. It's a big system out here. Enough for thousands of ships. Millions, even. Come on up. We'll be waiting for you. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Richard. Richard, thank you. It's nice to have you on there. You're starting to make waves, sir. Starting to make waves. Thank you so much. Lovely to have you back. And Stephanie, like I say, what can I say? That, that narration was just perfect. Do you know what I mean? Just lovely and clean and crisp and fantastic. Fantastic. I'm not joking you. I've heard some terrible ones in my time. That was lovely. Thank you so much. So, it's the, you know, it's, it's time. It's Mr... Ten years this fella's been <laughs> shout out his messages to JJ Campanella. Jim, sir. Greetings and oblo-metallical psychofenestrations, my jocularly matriculated listeners. Welcome to this December 2016 Science News Update. I'm your host for this unremittingly hypo-subsidized science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Welcome to you all. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to each and every one of our listeners. Let's start out with a story that is related to one that we have been covering for a number of years. You may remember from last month and previous podcasts that I have spoken about human ancestors and contamination of Homo sapien DNA. 
due to, well, hookups with our various ancient relatives. Like the Neanderthals, to a greater extent, and the Denisovans, a distant cousin of the Neanderthals, to a lesser extent. Well, it turns out, if you do some digging into the human genome, you can find traces of ancient non-homo sapien ancestors who are neither Neanderthals or Denisovans. Imagine that. Dr. Ryan Bolander of the University of Texas reported this month that people from Melanesia in the South Pacific may carry genetic evidence of a previously unknown extinct hominid species. Cue the oohs and ahs. Ryan reported that, quote, the new species is not Neanderthal or Denisovan, but a different related hominid group. We're missing a population, or we're misunderstanding something about the relationships. Human history is a lot more complicated than we thought it was, unquote. The article says that this mysterious relative was probably from a third branch of the hominid family tree that produced Neanderthals and Denisovans, an extinct distant cousin of Neanderthals. Even though lots of Neanderthal fossils have been found in Europe and Asia, uh, you may remember that back in 2015, I reported the discovery of the Denisovans. And the Denisovans are known only from DNA from a finger bone and a couple of teeth found in a Siberian cave. Bolander calculates that Europeans and Chinese people carry a similar amount of Neanderthal ancestry, about 2.8%. Europeans have no hint of Denisovan ancestry, and people in China have a tiny amount, about a tenth of a percent, according to Bolander's calculations. But 2.74% of the DNA in people in Papua New Guinea comes from Neanderthals, and Bolander estimates that the amount of Denisovan DNA in Melanesians is about 1.11%, not the 3-6% estimated by other researchers. While investigating this disagreement with other research in the Denisovan DNA, Bolander concluded that a third group of hominids may have bred with the ancestors of Melanesians. Of course, if you think about it, all the speculation about new unknown hominids may be just so much nonsense. I mean, we really don't have enough information about ancient human-related species to be making judgment calls like that. Remember what I said a minute ago, DNA has been examined from just a few Neanderthal fossils, and worse, the Denisovan remains have been found in only one Siberian cave from one individual. For all we know, Denisovans may have been widespread, genetically diverse. It's kind of hard to judge from one finger bone. Anyway, if that were the case, the Papuans' DNA could have come from a Denisovan population that had been separated from the Siberian Denisovans for long enough so that they looked like distinct groups. Just like European and Asians today are genetically different from each other. However, still, if Denisovans were not that genetically diverse across the world, the mysterious extinct ancestor could well be another species. Let's change gears completely and talk about astronomy news. Dr. Christopher Colice of the University of Nottingham reported October 10th in the online journal Archive that the newest count for galaxies in our observable universe is 2 trillion. This updated headcount is roughly 10 times greater than previous estimates and suggests there are a lot more galaxies out there for future telescopes to explore. Hordes of relatively tiny galaxies, with as few as a million suns, were responsible for most of this tweaking to the cosmic census. Astronomers haven't directly seen these galaxies yet, 
Kanselice combined data from many ground and space-based telescopes to look at how the number of galaxies in the typical volume of the universe has changed over much of cosmic history. His group then calculated how many galaxies have come and gone in the universe. They found that the galaxy population has dwindled over time, as most of those two trillion galaxies collided and merged to build larger galaxies like the Milky Way. That's in line with prevailing ideas about how massive galaxies have been assembled. Seeing many of these remote runts, however, is beyond the ability of even the next-generation telescope at the moment. Consolice says, quote, We will have to wait at least several decades before even the majority of galaxies have basic imaging. Unquote. And the next story is directly related to the previous one, and it is about these dim galaxies. And we're working on a theme here. As Consolice discovered, not all galaxies are quite as lit up with stars as the Milky Way or the Andromeda, one of our nearest intergalactic neighbors. These sad, dark galaxies have no grand spirals of stars and gas wrapped around a glowing core, nor are they radiant balls of densely packed stars. Instead, they possess just sad wisps of starlight. Poetic, isn't it? The first of these dark galaxies was discovered in 2015. But since then, over a thousand more of these dark, star-starved giants have been found. Dr. Roberto Abraham of the University of Toronto, who has recently reported a study of these diffuse galaxies in astrophysical science letters, says, quote, If you took the Milky Way but threw away about 99% of the stars, you'd get one of these dark galaxies, unquote. How these dark galaxies form is unclear. They could be a whole new type of galaxy that challenges ideas about the birth of galaxies, or they might be outliers of already familiar galaxies, sort of like black sheep shaped by their environment. And wherever they come from, dark galaxies appear to be pretty ubiquitous. They're all over. Abraham says that these quote-unquote ghost galaxies are puzzling on many fronts. Any galaxy the size of the Milky Way should have no trouble creating lots of stars. But it's still unclear how heavy dark galaxies are. Perhaps these shadowy entities are failed galaxies, as massive as our own, but mysteriously prevented from giving birth to a vast stellar family. Or despite being as wide as the Milky Way, they could be relative lightweights, stretched thin by internal or even external forces. Either way, with so few stars... Abraham says it is clear that so-called dark galaxies must have enormous deposits of unseen matter to resist simply being pulled apart by the gravity of other galaxies. From what researchers have learned so far, dark galaxies seem to have been lurking for many billions of years. They're located throughout their home clusters, suggesting that they've had a long time to spread out among the other galaxies. And the meager stars that they have are mostly red, indicating that they're pretty old. With this kind of long-term survival, dark galaxies probably have some sort of uh, strength that's holding them together. And again, probably dark matter. All galaxies are loaded with dark matter, this mysterious substance that reveals itself only through gravitational interaction with gas and stars. A lot of that dark matter sits in an extended blob that reaches well beyond the visible edge of a galaxy. Astrophysicists say that On average, dark matter accounts for about 85% of all the matter in the universe. Abraham says that dark matter must make up about 98% of the mass of a 
dark galaxy for there to be enough gravity to keep it intact. Dark galaxies appear to have similar fractions of dark matter focused near their cores as the Milky Way does throughout its broader halo. For example, one dark galaxy that Abraham has studied, Dragonfly 44, weighs roughly one trillion times the mass of the Sun, but glows with a mere 1% of our galaxy's stars. At this point, astronomers have found a total of 854 dark galaxies, 332 of which appear to be roughly the size of our Milky Way. Abraham finishes with, quote, As our telescopes get bigger and more space telescopes become available, we think we will find more and more ultra-diffuse galaxies. We don't know how many there are, but we know there are a lot of them, and there could be even more dark galaxies than bright ones out there, unquote. Next story. You may remember a couple of months ago, I reported that some Israeli computer security experts were able to hack a computer by listening to its cooling fan. This probably freaked out many of you who already put tape over your webcam and are worried about your government, or the Illuminati for that matter, hacking your Wi-Fi to watch over you. If you are truly worried about hackers spying on you, some of you may have even opened up your computers or phones to disable or remove built-in audio components so that they can't be hijacked by hackers. Well, Dr. Mordecai Guri of Ben-Gurion University's Cybersecurity Lab in Israel has come up with a new hack for you to be worried about. His group has written a beautiful piece of malware that converts your headphones into makeshift microphones that can slyly record your conversations. Guri wrote a program called Speaker, designed to demonstrate how determined hackers could find a way to surreptitiously hijack a computer to record audio even when the device's microphones have been entirely removed or disabled. The experimental malware instead repurposes the speakers in earbuds or headphones to use them as microphones, converting the vibrations in the air into electromagnetic signals to clearly capture audio from across a room. Gurry says, quote, People don't think about this privacy vulnerability. Even if you remove your computer's microphone, if you use headphones, you can still be recorded, unquote. It can't really be much of a surprise to you listeners out there that this is possible. Even I have seen YouTube videos that demonstrate how earbuds can function as microphones if you're in some sort of an emergency pinch. Gurry reminded me that, quote, just as the speakers and headphones turn electromagnetic signals into sound waves through a membrane's vibrations, those membranes can also work in reverse, picking up sound vibrations and converting them back into electromagnetic signals, unquote. Gurry took this a step further. His malware uses a little-known feature of the Realtek audio codec chips to silently retask the computer's output channel as an input channel, allowing the malware to record audio even when the headphone remains connected to an output-only jack and there's not even a microphone channel on their plug. Gurry says the Realtek chips are so common that the attack works on practically any desktop computer. And it doesn't matter whether it runs Windows or Mac OS. It does seem to be most laptops. Yuri says, quote, This is a real vulnerability. It's what makes almost every computer today vulnerable to this type of attack. And this is not fantasy. I saw a photo earlier this year that Mark Zuckerberg had put tape over his laptop's microphone. 
I also watched a video of Edward Snowden demonstrating how to remove the internal mic from a smartphone. Even the NSA's Information Assurance Division suggests hardening PCs and Macs by disabling their microphones, unquote. Curry reported his team tried the audio hack with a pair of Sennheiser headphones. They found they could record from as far as 20 feet away and even compressed the resulting recording and sent it over the internet like a hacker would and still distinguish the words spoken by a voice. Gurry finishes with telling us that there's no simple software patch for the eavesdropping attack. The property of Realtek's audio codec chips that allows a program to switch an output channel to an input isn't an accidental bug so much as a dangerous feature that Realtek put in there. And it's one that can't be easily fixed without redesigning and replacing the entire chip in future computers. All right, all you paranoiacs listening to me, take note. If determined hackers are out there to bug your conversations, all your careful computer microphone removal surgery isn't going to be quite enough, according to Gurry. You're going to need to do that last one thing, and that is unplug that cheap pair of earbuds hanging around your neck. Next story, courtesy of Nike. Well, all right, not really. Nike and other sneaker brands don't really care how you run, just that you buy their sneakers and run. So, Dr. James Weber of the University of Arizona reports in the November issue of the Journal of Experimental Biology that humans run heel-toe and not toe-heel for a reason. Weber has been a barefoot runner for a decade, although, frankly, I have no idea how barefoot running is possible on any street anywhere, let alone in Arizona, where the average street temps can literally fry eggs. But that's not the point. Weber noted that to run barefoot, you have to run heel-toe to be more comfortable, and that didn't seem to be a problem energetically. So he wondered why almost everyone runs heel-toe instead and not toe-heel. Is there some mechanical advantage that he doesn't know or understand? Weber says in the article that Walking humans effectively move like, quote, an inverted swinging pendulum, unquote, pivoting above the foot that is in contact with the ground as we step forward. He explains that when we transfer our weight forward from heel to toe, the center of pressure slides across the sole of the foot. And Weber reasoned that that could mean that the true center of pendulum rotation is effectively several centimeters beneath the ground. And he wondered whether our conventional flat-footed style of walking effectively lengthens the leg. If that's true, then it may improve our efficiency and allow us to walk faster than if we walk toe-first, like, well, lots of animals do. Weber observed what happened to walkers when they reversed their normal footfall patterns to walk like ballet dancers, landing on the ball of the foot first before allowing the heel to touch down. Weber recruited 14 volunteers to try out the novel walk. He then filmed them walking over speeds ranging from a gentle 8 tenths of a meter per second uh, walk to a brisk 1.5 meters per second walk, before asking them to revert to their more conventional heel-toe pattern. Calculating the effective leg length of the volunteers as they walk conventionally and then toe first, Weber was impressed to see that the walker's legs were effectively 15 centimeters longer when their heel hit the ground first. When he compared the cost of the two styles of locomotion, the toe-first walkers 
were having to work 10% harder when they landed on the heel first. Weber also asked the volunteers to walk on a treadmill as he slowly increased speed until they had to shift up into a running gear because it was no longer efficient to continue walking. And he found that they switched to a run at lower speeds when touching down with the front of the foot first, suggesting that toe-first walking was less efficient than conventional walking. So according to Weber, we appear to gain mechanical benefit of longer legs when landing on the heel first while walking because weight is transferred forward along the foot during a stride, which effectively shifts the stride pivot point several centimeters beneath the sole of the foot to extend the virtual leg. Weber ends the paper suggesting that our unusual running style could be a relic of our evolutionary past, explaining that the combination of a heel-to-toe gait and the long rigid foot appears to be essential for economical walking in our ancient ancestors. He says, quote, I suspect that early humans retained the unusual posture despite developing shorter toes to generate a stronger push-off when they took up running in pursuit of prey, unquote. This next short report was published in the journal Nature last month, and it's really a story of mistaken identity. Gaten Dugas. He was a flight attendant from Canada who supposedly contracted HIV in Haiti or Africa and brought the virus to the U.S. to his death in 1984. And basically, the poor guy has been considered patient zero or the only AIDS case outside of California for many years. If you don't know what patient zero is, it means that it's the carrier or the original source for an infection disease. So poor Mr. Dugas has been the Judas goat that everyone has pointed to as bringing HIV to the U.S. Given that there were thousands of cases observed on both the East and the West Coast, Dr. Michael Warobi of the University of Arizona set out to determine the true origin of HIV by analyzing blood samples of individuals that passed away from HIV in the 1970s and 80s. Warobi and his colleagues used a new, unique sequencing approach, which they called RNA jackhammering, to reconstruct the HIV-1 genome from blood samples. From these sequences, the authors found that HIV-1 infections in San Francisco occurred around 1978 and were linked to a transfection from New York City in 1976. After additional analysis of the HIV genome in patient zero, it appeared that this genome was typical of HIV strains in the U.S. and not those of the Caribbean, where it was always assumed that Dugas had contracted the virus. Consequently, because they didn't come from the Caribbean, Gaetan Dugas can no longer be blamed as the original source of HIV in the U.S., so probably somewhere out there, Gaetan is smiling because he's no longer being blamed for the deaths of so many. All right, last story of the night. <laughs> Did you really think you could escape a month without me talking about microbiomes again? You are wrong, mon frere. Quite, quite wrong. So what now about microbiomes, you're asking? Can the wrong gut bugs cause you to be a Nazi? Well, no, still no probably never know. However, Dr. Federico Ray of the University of Wisconsin reports this month in the journal Molecular Cell that gut microbes affect epigenetic patterns in multiple host tissues and that a Western-type diet abolishes those effects in mice, according to a new study. Remember, epigenetics is the study of how 
the environment changes genetics in an individual and their offspring. Frankly, the findings from the study could have significant implications for our understanding of the complex interactions between diet, the microbiome, and well, host health. Ray says, quote, as we move away from plant-based diets and into diets heavy in processed foods, Westerners may be losing some of the communication between microbes and host, unquote. Through fermentation, gut bacteria metabolize complex carbohydrates to produce short-chain fatty acids like acetate, propionate, and butyrate. These small organic acids have both disease-promoting and therapeutic effects, but the underlying molecular mechanisms are still unclear. The enzymes that modify histones to regulate transcription epigenetics, these regulatory enzymes are sensitive to the availability of small molecule metabolites, like acetate, propionate, and butyrate. And thus, they enable DNA and chromatin to respond to changes in the chemical milieu and environment. In the new study, Ray set out to examine whether gut microbial metabolites absorbed and metabolized by the host have similar effects. And to address that question, his team examined histone post-translational modification states in mice that were either exposed to microbes or kept in a germ-free environment. They found that gut microbes alter host histone acetylation and methylation not only in the colon, which is in direct contact with microbes and their metabolites, but also in tissues outside the gut. Now remember, methylation adds a chemical group to DNA that causes it to fold up like a concertina and close down activity. The opposite of that, histone acetylation, does, well, the exact opposite, causing the DNA to open up and become more active so that genes are turned on. Now, the interesting part is that bacteria in our gut have the ability to turn genes on and off long-term across generations. Mice that were given a typical Western diet high in sugar and fat suppressed the microbial production of short-chain fatty acids and abolished the effects of gut microbes on host chromatin states. In short, the probiotic effects of the gut microbes were diminished and they no longer were able to affect expression of our genes. The really cool thing is that by supplementing the diet of the mice with short-chain fatty acids, that was actually sufficient to recapitulate those microbe-driven chromatin and transcriptional effects, turn them back on, so that the gene regulatory balance was returned to their diets. Based on the findings, Ray proposes that eukaryotic histone-modifying enzymes have evolved to sense not only endogenous metabolites in our guts, but also those metabolites produced by gut microbes. The study may have important clinical implications, given that gut microbes have been linked to cardiovascular disease, obesity, metabolic syndrome, diabetes, and inflammatory bowel disorders, rampant Nazism, all right, I'm kidding about the last one. Well, I guess for now, it just remains unclear exactly how specific short-chain fatty acids, again, acetates, butyrates, propionates, how they each contribute to the beneficial or pathogenic effects on the host. Well, that's all for now. As always, take care. Pull out those earbuds if you want to stay private. 
Keep your probiotic gut bacteria happy with a good diet. Remember, walk heel-toe unless you're on a catwalk modeling clothes. Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Oh, there we go. Rounding off the year. Rounding off 2016. Jim, what can I say? If I can just give you a big hug. Thank you so much. So that is today's show. Like I say, the next one will be in 2017. And it will be a big year for Starship Sova, for Tales to Terrify and Farfetched Fables. We are putting our war tours in the, that world of Pain the Writer. Yes! It, it, it Honestly, it's huge for her. You know what I mean? Please support her. You know, Patreon's the way to go. If you can kind of help out. Just a tiny two ninety nine. You know, forget that little coffee. Two ninety nine. Let's get the, the, the writers paid. And, you know, our next goal, because we're going to pay the writers, is pay the narrators. So, you know, and, and after the narrators come the staff. <laughs> no, honestly, it would mean a lot. Honestly, two ninety nine. If all of us did that, man, we'd be singing to the high heavens. Until the new year. Just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.